Morning, everybody. It's good to see you. What an encouraging morning it has been so far. And uh, I am confident that it's going to continue to be encouraging, uh, not in any way because it's me preaching this morning, but because we are now going to open God's Word and sit under the preaching of it. And so here is God to speak to us. God is with us this morning, and as we open His Word, He means to encourage us, to point us to Jesus, to build us up in our faith together. Please turn in your Bible, if you have one, to Acts chapter 10. We're in a series in the book of Acts at the moment, and this morning we're going to be looking at Acts 10 verse 1 through to 11 verse 18. And the title, as you can see on the screen, that I've given to this morning's message is The Everyone Gospel. The Everyone Gospel. Dragon's Den. Think we have a picture? There we go. Some of you will be familiar with this. Um, I believe it's called Shark Tank in the States. Is that correct? There we go. Um, But I don't think the Americans came up with it, and I don't think we came up with it. I believe it was created somewhere else in the world. That was my my main research this week. Dragon's Den, if you haven't seen it, aspiring entrepreneurs come onto the show. They have a golden opportunity to pitch their business idea to five multi-millionaire investors who are known as the Dragons. And there are... In the limited viewing that I've had, there are usually two key questions that the dragons ask of the entrepreneur. First of all, they ask, what does it do? At which point the owner demonstrates, and hopefully it works, they demonstrate their product and their idea and what it is meant to do. And of course, part of the um, entertainment of the show is it doesn't always work and doesn't always look like it does anything. But that's the first question. What does it do? Secondly... The second question they ask is, who is it for? What is its target demographic? Who is it designed to help? Well, repeatedly in the book of Acts so far, we have seen Luke's answer to that first question. What does it do? What does the gospel do? We've seen that the gospel invites even the very worst of sinners to repent and believe on Christ and be saved. And we have seen again and again how it mightily works. It works powerfully. It powerfully saves those who believe, bestowing on them the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit come to live in them. And so already in just nine chapters, we have seen thousands saved, thousands of lives transformed with Saul last week, the the former grand persecutor of the church being the most recent example of what the gospel can do. The gospel saves sinners mightily and it did then and it still does today. But the second question that the dragons ask is who is it for? Who should it be offered to? What is its target demographic? And that's the question I think that our passage this morning so helpfully answers. It's a question that had to be answered in the days of the early church in order for the gospel to spread as far and wide as God intended. But it's also a question that's vitally important for us to answer today. Because I think perhaps more often than we realize, we can still impose limits on the kind of people the gospel is intended for. The events of this chapter we're going to look at as well are one of the most prominent landmarks in the book of Acts. If the book of Acts is like looking out on a vast mountain range, 
then the three highest peaks, I think, particularly in terms of how much time Luke spends on them, the three highest peaks that you would see would be Pentecost, Saul's conversion, and then the events of this morning's chapter. Here's what this morning's chapter is here to tell us in a nutshell, that the gospel of Christ is the everyone gospel. It is a message intended by God to be offered to everyone. And we're going to see that in three particular ways throughout this chapter and a half this morning. First of all, we're going to see that everyone needs the gospel. Secondly, that the gospel is for everyone. And thirdly, that the gospel saves everyone who believes. Uh, So those are our three headings we're going to work through this morning. First of all, everyone needs the gospel. Have a look at Acts 10 verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Notice what kind of a man Cornelius is. Uh, There are two things in particular that Luke tells us about him. First of all, he's successful. He's a centurion of an Italian cohort, which means he was in charge of a hundred men. A hundred soldiers were under him. And that would also mean he was paid very well, as much as five times that of an ordinary soldier. And so Cornelius is relatively wealthy and he's successful. He's a prominent man in society. That's the first thing about him. And the second thing Luke is telling us here about him is he is morally upright and religious. He says, a devout man who feared God with all his household. Cornelius is a Gentile, but he's actually a believer in the God of Israel. So he's not a Jew, but he believes in the God of Israel. And perhaps it was something about the pagan idols of the day, and, and the Romans had so many gods that they would worship. But something about that perhaps left him very unsatisfied. And perhaps many things about Israel's God attracted him. Now, granted, he's not actually a full Jewish convert. That means he wasn't circumcised. Uh, He didn't follow the food laws or take part in the temple sacrifices. But he is a God-fearing man who who leads his household to be devout with him. So this this man, he's a good husband, a good father, good master. He's generous with his wealth. He's kind to those in need. And he's a man of prayer as well. And I just wonder this morning, who does this remind us of aren't there in fact all sorts of people in our lives who bear a resemblance to Cornelius in one way or another people in our lives who are successful materially secure moral upright some who perhaps even say they believe in God and maybe they even pray they give to good causes And it's tempting to think, isn't it, when we think about those kind of people in our lives, and maybe they're in our neighbourhoods, to think that perhaps they actually do already have all that they need. That who are we to go in with the gospel and tell them that there's something important that they lack in their lives, when their life actually seems pretty much all together. In some ways it looks even better than ours. We think to ourselves, perhaps they don't need to hear about Jesus. And yet, the truth is, none of the good things that Cornelius or our friends and neighbours have or do are actually nearly enough if they don't have Jesus. Certainly not enough to save them and bring them back into the one relationship that they were ultimately made for. 
Now, just by coincidence, earlier this week, I brought home a picture that I thought would look great on our wall, um, but uh, the rest of my family were not so impressed, and so it left the house again pretty quickly. Um, now, granted, it does show a grown bearded man riding a hippo, <laughs> chasing a very worried-looking heart, but I love the words at the bottom, and you may be familiar with these, written over 1,500 years ago by a Christian called Augustine of Hippo, which explains the hippo. So the picture makes you feel clever as well if you know a little bit of church history. Here's what he says. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. We were made by God to above all else know and find our rest in him. Nothing compares to a restored relationship with the God who made us. Now, if anyone could make themselves right with this God through good works and an earnest, generous heart, it would be people like Cornelius, upright, devout, generous. But good works just don't work, do they? When it comes to dealing with the gulf that exists between ourselves and God because of sin. Even Cornelius' genuine earnestness before God, towards God, does not equal righteousness before God. His earnestness towards God does not equal righteousness before God. He is still spiritually separated from God. And so just like Nicodemus in John chapter 3, uh, he's pious, he's respected, even a good man in the eyes of others, but it's not enough. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Everyone needs to hear and believe in Jesus to be saved and born again. Whether rich or poor, generous or stingy, successful or unsuccessful, religious or irreligious, everyone needs to hear the gospel above everything else that this world has to offer. And that is precisely what God now sends an angel to Cornelius to tell him. Look at verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. And now later on, when Peter recounts the story to the Jerusalem church, he adds that the angel told Cornelius, uh, chapter 11, verse 13, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So it is God himself, through an angel, who tells Cornelius, I have heard your prayers. I've seen you seeking after me. But that alone is not enough. What you, Cornelius, and your household ultimately need is a message. Send for a Christian to share a message with you. And notice here, not only does God not save Cornelius without the gospel, 
But he also doesn't send the angel to tell him the gospel. Now, I'm pretty sure the angel could have passed on the message better than you or I or even Peter could. This would have been a golden evangelistic opportunity for the angel. Cornelius is eager. He's leaning in. He is primed and ready to believe. But no, God has determined that Cornelius must hear the gospel from another human being. Evangelism is not the job of angels. It is the job of Christians. Can God choose to save someone in a far off place where there's no gospel witness? Certainly it's not impossible. He could deliver the gospel message to someone far away in a dream or an angelic encounter or by some other supernatural means because there's no Christian available to share it with them. And yet God's normal, revealed and chosen way of working is to prepare people's hearts for the gospel, to preparing their hearts for the gospel and simultaneously preparing Christians who can share that gospel with them. God continually orchestrates just these kinds of meetings. One example I read of this week was of a missionary who lived in a dangerous part of the Middle East uh, and who had started an underground church. And the locals were constantly trying to discover the location of where this church was meeting uh, in order to go there and persecute them. But they could never find them. Well, finally, late one night, the missionary heard a knock at the door of the church's secret meeting place. And so he cautiously opened it to see who was there. And he saw a tribesman standing there. And uh, I don't know if he was, the missionary would have been more surprised by the fact that the man had found the place or more concerned with what the man might do to him. But the man explained that he had walked for days in order to find the missionary. And he said, I had a vision three days ago that there would be a man standing at this address who would tell me how to get to heaven. Sir, are you this man? Wouldn't that be amazing? And then another, another story I read this week uh, from a commentator on Acts. His name's Tony Merida. He said, an old classmate was recently ministering to Muslims in Washington, D.C. One day, a Muslim man approached him and asked, who is I am? I keep seeing I am in my dreams. After giving a summary explanation, he gave the seeker a Bible and encouraged him to read the Gospel of John. It wasn't long until he led the man to faith in Jesus. And at that point, the convert confessed many of the I am statements I read in John, I heard first in my dreams. And then uh, Tony Meredith goes on to write. He says, this story reminds us that even when God uses visions to nudge people toward faith in Christ, Christians must still do the exciting work of explaining the gospel to them that they might understand and embrace it with confidence. God doesn't always speak to non-believers or even to Christians through dramatic dreams. Sometimes he draws people through a deep down hunger of sorts. Sometimes he begins to nudge people toward faith in Christ by making them curious about the gospel or about spiritual questions involving what happens after death or why people follow moral codes. If you are hungering to know more about Jesus or find yourself drawn into a conversation with someone else who expresses such a desire, realize that God does actually seek us. And of course, it's the very fact that God seeks people and even prepares their hearts for the gospel 
that doesn't bypass their need for us. It's precisely what makes our witness necessary and often so fruitful. God works in people's hearts. He begins to till the soil. He stirs up questions, desires, hunger, thirstings after something. And then he sends us in with the gospel and the ground is prepared and so often fruit is born from it. Everyone needs the gospel. Secondly, the gospel is for everyone. Secondly, the gospel is for everyone. At first glance, we might think this chapter, and I know we've not quite got to it yet, but that it's really all about the conversion of Cornelius. But it's actually about a second conversion as well of a different kind in Peter. Because at the very same time that God is telling Cornelius to send for Peter, and and then Cornelius' messengers are already on the road to, uh, to, to Joppa, God is at the same time preparing Peter to take the gospel to Cornelius. Acts 10 verse 9, The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Now, Peter, of course, doesn't know yet that they're coming. We know. We've had a little window into what was happening elsewhere. And and just to say, one of the reasons that Luke records the account again in chapter 11 is that he shows there how events unfolded from Peter's point of view. You know when you've seen one of those movies and they spend the first half showing you events unfold from a particular person's perspective? And then all of a sudden it rewinds and you get to see the same events from somebody else's perspective. And it's usually fascinating. That's why Luke does this here, repeating the story from these different perspectives. But so Peter's up on the household, he, up on the housetop, and he's praying. Acts 10, verse 10. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down And accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Now perhaps with Peter, we can relate to being inwardly perplexed by this strange vision. Why does it matter so much what Peter does and doesn't eat? Well, the reason it matters is because as a Jew, he's been subject all of his life to the dietary requirements of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and he set them apart to be a holy nation, a nation unlike all of the other nations around them, a nation who would know and trust and worship and follow God. And so a part of that set apartness was to be displayed in the way that they lived. It was to be displayed in what they could and couldn't eat. They weren't to worship other gods like the other nations did. 
They weren't to behave and live like the other nations did, and they weren't to eat like the other nations did either. And so God declared that some foods were clean and some foods were unclean and not to be eaten. So basically every mealtime, maybe many of us as we sit down for a meal, we, we say grace, we remember that God is God, he's our God, that he's given us this food and he's kind and generous. Well, every mealtime, they were reminded as they looked out at what they could eat, that God had delivered them from slavery and made them his set-apart people. And that also made associating with Gentiles, with non-Jews, a challenge, especially when it came to eating with them. And so it's no wonder here that Peter is struggling as suddenly, before his very eyes, he sees this great sheet being let down from heaven like a tablecloth. And on the menu is a great smorgasbord of both clean and unclean animals. And then the Lord himself says to Peter, rise, kill and eat. And Peter's like, what? I I can't, Lord. I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. See, Peter here, he isn't being disobedient so much as just slow. He is slow. Peter's like the patron saint of slow people, so I'm encouraged and maybe many of you will be as well. God is gracious to those that are slow. He's slow to keep up with what God has been doing. But now God is making it clear to him. Now Peter can eat anything and with anyone. And the question is, why such a dramatic change? Verse 15 is the key. Look at verse 15. What God has made clean. See, all of the Old Testament purity, purity laws and dietary laws, they were designed to communicate the importance of God's people being spiritually clean. But they were merely shadows that pointed forward to the Savior who would actually make God's people clean. And now the Savior has arrived And he has died in the place of sinners. And so those old symbols about clean and unclean, they're not necessary anymore. They've been fulfilled in Jesus who took upon himself all of our actual sin and uncleanness and took upon himself everything that separates us from God. Christ came to cleanse sinners, not from the outside in through diet and rituals, but from the inside out by dying for our sins. He, the perfect and righteous one, was cut off from God so that we, the unrighteous, could be washed clean forever and welcomed in. Getting back to Acts 10 then, the ultimate point of Peter's vision is not about food. It's about people. It's about which people the gospel is for and which people the gospel should be offered to. And even as Peter's still pondering the vision, Cornelius' men are are walking up the drive looking for him. And then the Spirit tells Peter, rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. And again, later on in chapter 11, verse 12, Peter adds, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. I think that is a beautiful phrase right there, making no distinction. That is the phrase that helps us determine who to share the gospel with. Making no distinction. It cannot be clearer than that. God can make anyone in this world clean through Jesus, Jew or Gentile, anybody. He can make them clean and therefore the gospel is for everyone. And we therefore should make no distinction as to who we're willing to share it with. 
And so this morning, let's ask ourselves the question, who are the people who would appear on our own sheet of clean and unclean people? Who are the people we feel most reluctant to love and welcome and witness to? Let's each ask ourselves, and if, um, like me, maybe your initial reaction is, well, no, of course, nobody, there's, there's no one, it's all all clean, I'd go to anybody. And then as you, as you think more, and as I thought more this week, I thought, do you know, in subtle ways, I think I do discriminate. Not that I would say the gospel's not for this person, but I'm more wary to go to them for a variety of reasons. So let's ask ourselves, do I discriminate on the basis of age, appearance, ancestry, affluence, or education? What is my disposition, for instance, when I encounter a person covered in tattoos and piercings? Or when I'm introduced to a same-sex couple or a transgender person? What about when I meet the new Muslim family who's moved into my neighborhood? Do I see them just as I see everyone else, as fellow creatures made in the image of God and as sinners who need more than anything else in the world, they need to hear about my Savior? Or are there some people I don't think the gospel is for? God makes no distinctions, and so nor should we. Now, Peter, to give him credit here, is a fast learner. He's a fast learner. And Peter, verse 21, went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. And so he invited them in to be his guests. Now, that's actually powerful in itself. Immediately, Peter is inviting Gentiles into his house to be overnight guests. So already, he's being transformed in his thinking. Verse 23, the next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. Uh, This is like Cornelius inviting a bunch of friends onto an evangelistic course before he's already become a Christian. And he said to them, Peter said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. God has shown Peter and he's showing us again this morning that the gospel is for everyone without distinction. And that therefore we should be ready to welcome all manner of people and witness to all manner of people and hold out to all manner of people the message of the gospel of Jesus. To just lovingly hold out this invitation to everyone to hear and believe and be saved. And it's that hearing and believing and being saved which is precisely what we see thirdly and finally in our passage this morning. So thirdly and finally, the gospel saves everyone who believes. Verse 29, and I ask then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, 
Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your arms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, just as much as you you have to love Peter's outsider embracing heart, you also have to love the humility of Cornelius here. He recognizes the kindness of Peter in coming to him. Even going a little bit too far in bowing down before Peter and Peter has to kind of set things straight there. But remember, Cornelius is a leader of men. He's a centurion. He's affluent and respectable and looked up to by many people, including his friends and family that are now all gathered around him. Peter's just a Jewish fisherman. But to Cornelius, he is nothing less than a messenger of Jesus, a bearer of the greatest treasure on earth, God's saving gospel. Cornelius' heart has been prepared for this moment by the Lord. Verse 33, now he says, Cornelius says, now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Here is a wide open door, the kind of wide open door we just pray for, for Peter to proclaim the gospel. And while many times we might not get quite such a wide open door from the start to present the whole gospel, I think it's really helpful to see what Peter considers essential to share with them. And notice as well, before we get into it, it's the same gospel with the same content for both Jews and Gentiles. So Peter doesn't arrive in Gentile country and change his message, change the gospel. No, it's the same gospel. The people in front of him, they may be very different, but the focus of his message remains the same. So what are the essential things then that every person, whoever they are, needs to hear in order to believe and be saved? Here, Peter focuses on three things. Who it's for, what it's, uh, sorry, who it's for, who it's about, what it promises. First of all, who it's for, everyone. So he's telling Cornelius this. Verse 34, Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, he's not saying people get right with God just by doing right. But he's saying in terms of who this gospel invitation could be offered to, well, God is willing to offer it to anybody who looks for it and is open to hear it. So Peter here begins by reassuring his listeners, this message, it really is for you. The Christian gospel is not just for certain people of certain backgrounds, God's heart is open to all who come to him through Jesus. This is like us reassuring someone, hey, you don't have to have a Christian background. You don't have to have been to church before or have lived a certain way before for this message to apply to you. Whoever you are, this message is God's invitation to you. So who it's for, everyone. Then Peter explains who it's about, Jesus. And uh, unsurprisingly, most of his message is about Jesus, not about himself, not about his hearers. It's about the historical Jesus and his life, death, resurrection, and his future return as judge of the living and the dead. So verse 36, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. 
how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. And I wonder here, Peter, I would think, spoke a bit more about the significance of Christ dying on a tree. As Peter uh, that wrote in one of his letters later on, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. And then Peter, not having explained Jesus' death, also speaks of the resurrection. Verse 40, But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And then thirdly, finally, Peter tells them how to respond. Believe. Simply believe. Verse 43. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is not a message about turning over a new leaf and we need people to know that it's not a message about making amends or trying harder to be a good person it is a message about God's mercy towards sinners it's a message of salvation by grace not works which is why on this occasion the response of Cornelius and his household is practically immediate in fact you almost get the impression Peter's still mid-flow maybe he's like no I wanted to say a bit more But this is a message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the gospel does save everyone who simply hears and believes. And so in this instance, the very moment Peter says, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins, well, immediately in their hearts they believe and they're saved. See, there's no altar call here. There's no card to sign. There's not even an invitation to raise a hand or come forward. None of that is necessary for them to be saved. They don't have to move a muscle or even speak a word. They just have to, in the quietness of their own hearts, repent and believe. Oh, how simple God has made it to respond and be saved. Well, the moment Cornelius and his household believe, not only do they receive the forgiveness of their sins, but they also receive the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the words. And this here, it's always amazing that someone comes to Christ and in that first instance of faith, the Holy Spirit fills them, comes upon them, comes to dwell in them. But here this could not be more significant as is clear in the response of the Jewish Christians that that Peter has brought with him, verse 45, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who've received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. And as Peter later on explains to the apostles and other Jewish believers back in Jerusalem, Peter later explains this is essentially a 
Gentile Pentecost. Acts 11 verse 15, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning in Acts 2. And this is proof positive. These Gentiles had become Christians with no need to follow the Old Testament ceremonial laws or in any way become Jewish Christians. They had come to genuine saving faith in Christ. They had already received now the fullness of the Spirit. They had been accepted by God as full and equal members of his people. And that's why Peter's so willing to baptize them in water and welcome them as fully-fledged members of the church. He's like, they've already been baptized with the Spirit. I can't hold back water baptism from them. As he says later in chapter 11, verse 17, who was I that I could stand in God's way? This then is a watershed moment in the book of Acts and in all of redemptive history. No wonder Cornelius' conversion gets told three times over. This is about far more than just one man and his household. This concerns God's plans for the nations. Jesus has told all of his followers, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And he'd promised them, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And now the full extent of those promises is really beginning to be fulfilled in the most demonstrable and irreversible way and so from this point on in the book of Acts and in every day of history since the gospel of Jesus has been spreading throughout the nations on towards the ends of the earth carried on the lips of faith-filled Christians and used mightily by the Holy Spirit to open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears and bring men and women of every tribe and language and people and nation to saving faith in Jesus. He has been saving all manner of Peters and Sauls and Corneliuses and many more people besides. Saving every kind of person. That is what God is doing and nothing and no one can stand in his way. And even now here in Bristol today there are people like Cornelius who are restless for God. Even people who, because of God's prior working in them, are even now primed and ready to receive the good news, but someone must take it to them. Let's consider this morning, who has God put in our lives who we can point to Jesus and show them the way to be saved? Who is in our lives that we could tell, your heart will remain forever restless until it finds its rest in God. Romans 10 verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son to die in the place of people from every tribe and language and nation. Lord, we thank you this morning that he died for us and that you have extended your gospel invitation to us even as you worked in our hearts and gave us the faith to respond. Oh, Lord, we pray, please help us to continue to extend this message of good news to those who've never heard it or not yet responded to it. Lord, we know that nothing compares to knowing you. 
Nothing is more important than being brought back into a relationship with you. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Thank you this morning for leading every believer here to find eternal life and rest in you. Amen.